Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 9. The Green Berets The New College of California was located on Valencia in the Mission District of San Francisco, and from the looks of things, didn't have a thousandth of the endowment of Stanford University. This was perhaps understandable since their founder was a hippie priest from the 1970s, and not a railroad robber baron from the 1890s. Situated in an area with commercial businesses that ran the gamut from a hat shop to a garage to Pond's Oriental Restaurant, the college was housed in a pair of fake English tutors on opposite sides of the street. The tutors were painted a jarring turquoise with pink trim and had a lot of what smarmy realtors might euphemistically label deferred maintenance. They looked like a couple of Easter eggs that had fallen from the basket. I wrestled the galaxy into a parking spot near the corner at 18th Street and walked up the east side of the street to the larger of the two buildings. A young Hispanic guy wearing a backwards baseball cap stood in the doorway. He had a pencil mustache that drooped past his mouth like an escaping trail of ants. He took a long drag on a cigarette and watched with narrowed eyes as I came up the sidewalk. When I stopped in front of him, he nodded and blew smoke over his shoulder. You here for the rally? I said that I was. You're late, he said, and stubbed out the butt on the waffle sole of his Chuck Taylors. We started 50 minutes ago. Besides, the theater's full. The fire marshal won't let us bring any more inside. It didn't take long for me to fall back to my old tricks. I'm with the China Free Press, I said. I understand there's a press conference after the rally. You wouldn't want me to miss that, would you? He tore open the butt and shook out the few remaining grains of tobacco, folding the paper into a tiny square. You don't look like you'd be writing for the China anything, man, but I'm just the security guy. He pushed the square of the paper into the watch pocket of his black jeans. Go inside and park it on the sofa near the front window. I'll get someone to talk to you. He stepped back to let me enter and gestured towards the narrow lobby that ran along the front of the building. I went over to the sofa he indicated and sat down. The arch ceiling above me was crisscrossed by oak half timbers, and I could see fixtures where chandeliers once hung. But they'd taken those down and put up a dusty bank of fluorescent lights that made constant humming noise. Across the way were double doors for the theater, and on either side of them, a pair of what I guess could be called expressionist paintings. 
One looked like the scream on a Swin bicycle, and the other like an orange cactus with goiters. Overall, the ambience of the place was about as soothing as tinfoil on tooth fillings. The amplified but indistinct voice of someone giving a speech leaked through the double doors, and I killed the next 15 minutes, alternatively trying to decipher what was being said and amusing myself by pushing the tip of my shoelace in and out of the holes of my wingtips. Finally, a small door marked stage at the far end of the lobby opened, and an individual wearing a skirt and combat boots walked through. If that wasn't cause enough for cognitive dissonance, the fact that the individual was a man, was sporting a beret, a full beard, and didn't have any bagpipes, provided ample catalyst. As he marched purposefully across the lobby to where I was sitting, I had to conclude that, unlike Chris, he was simply a guy who liked to wear skirts, as opposed to a guy who occasionally liked to look like a girl. He came to parade rest a few feet from the couch, and I stood quickly to greet him. You're the journalist, then, he said gruffly. That's right. He asked for what paper and I went through my spiel about working for the China Free Press, having my stories translated, and reporting directly to the publisher. He didn't seem particularly impressed. We haven't had much coverage of our candidate by the Chinese-language papers, he said. You haven't had many rallies in Chinatown, either. He frowned and combed his fingers through the front of his strawberry-colored beard. True enough. I'm still not sure we can let you in. You're not on the press roster. I'm going to have to kick this upstairs. He pulled a walkie-talkie out of a bag-like thing that could only be referred to as a purse and strolled out of earshot. He spoke briefly, listened for what seemed like an interminable time, and then nodded his head sharply. As he walked back my direction, I could hear him say, Understood. On a choke chain. Before he clicked off. He shoved the walkie-talkie back into his bag. You can go into the press conference, he said, but you'll have to sit in the back, and Padilla isn't likely to call on you since he doesn't know you. He stepped forward, getting uncomfortably close. It was the first time a guy in a dress had tried to bulldoze me. And we expect you to write a balanced story. Kathleen says your paper isn't exactly simpatico with our platform. Who's Kathleen? the boss lady, the campaign manager. Come on, we'll wait in the back until the rally breaks up. He led me through the double doors to the back of the theater, where we stood beside a TV cameraman from a Spanish-language station who was filming the doings. Up on the dais, a guy in overalls was making an impassioned plea about halting gentrification of the Mission District. Padilla was seated at a table beside him. He wore a rumpled suit and had a frizzy Prince Valiant haircut, which apparently was his way of distinguishing himself from the polished GQ look of Hunter Loudon. Hovering off in the wings was a woman wearing another black beret, combat boots, and a t-shirt with a famous photo of Che Rivera from 1960. But she had opted for jeans instead of a skirt. She had a long, horsey face, wavy red hair, and eyes that seemed to be continuously flitting around the room, measuring and assessing the crowd's reaction to the speaker. 
I figured her for Kathleen, the boss lady. The guy in the overalls went on for another 20 minutes or so, winding the crowd up for the climax of his speech, where he shouted, And that is why the San Francisco Tenants Union is endorsing Mike Padilla for our next mayor. Para nuestro alcalde próximo. Vote for Padilla and stop condominium conversions. Vote for Padilla and provide a place for working people to live. The crowd didn't disappoint. The applause was loud and enthusiastic. A group of people stood in the middle section, perhaps a little too smartly for it to be spontaneous, and the rest of the theater was soon on its feet. Padilla got up from the table and the guy in the overalls grabbed his hand and raised it like the referee in a boxing match. The two of them basked in the mass adulation for another minute or so, and then Padilla leaned into the microphone and thanked everyone for coming. He closed by urging everyone to get out and wake the sleeping giant in San Francisco. Security staff materialized to herd people out the doors, and judging from the enthusiastic look on everyone's faces, I was probably the only one in the audience of young progressives who found it amusing that the Green Party candidate mentioned giants, given the risk of invoking the jolly guy who hawked can corn niblets. But maybe that was a generational thing. When enough of the crowd had passed, so we had some hope of maneuvering up the aisle, my escort led me to a cordoned-off section on the right that still had people sitting in it. He unhooked a velvet rope to let me into the fifth and final row of the section and guided me by the arm to a seat beside an older black woman who was killing time by knitting a cap. He piled into the seat next to mine and yanked the hem of his skirt up enough so that he could rest a combat-booted foot atop his knee. I didn't like to think what sort of niblets he was exposing. Making yourself comfortable, I asked. That's right. I'm sticking with you the whole time. He turned away from me, combing his beard in a nervous gesture, while he watched the staff wheel the podium off the stage to a spot in front of the cordon section. Padilla disengaged himself from a group of supporters lined up to shake his hand and joined Kathleen, who was busy at the podium putting papers down and adjusting the microphone. She glanced at him briefly as he came up, nodded, and turned back to address the reporters. Okay, let's get started, people. We have 25 minutes with Mike. There are no prepared remarks, but of course we're expecting you to dig in on the tenants' union endorsement. Mike will call for your questions, and no more than one follow-up is allowed. Everyone good with that? There was a collective murmur of assent from the 30-odd reporters. Kathleen gave a brisk nod and turned to put a hand in the small of Padilla's back. She edged him up to the microphone, and before he'd even had a chance to grasp the side of the podium, there were five urgent calls of Mike from the front row. I glanced over at the woman to my right, who continued blithely with her knitting. She felt my eyes on her and looked up with a smile. No use getting your bows in an uproar. He doesn't take many questions from the peanut gallery. I smiled back at her. I wish I'd brought my knitting. The opening pitch wasn't exactly a softball. It came from a Chronicle reporter who asked Padilla how he responded to the charge his policies would actually cause fewer units of affordable housing to be built in San Francisco by making it infeasible for for-profit developers to get through all the planning hurdles. 
Padilla handled it smoothly by citing a study in Vancouver, Canada, where similar policies resulted in a 20% increase in low-income housing over a five-year period. The next question was another toughie from the San Jose paper about Padilla's position on homelessness. Padilla parried it and the reporters follow up adroitly, and after taking a few more serious questions from the print media, finally wound down to a series of almost laughable queries from the TV people. My favorite came at the end from a vapid-looking guy with hard yellow hair. What color would you paint the interior of the new homeless shelters you're proposing, and why? Kathleen actually winced when she heard it and sidled up behind Padilla to whisper something urgent in his ear, most probably a direction to close things down. Up until that point, I had no idea what I expected to accomplish by being at the conference, but I decided to take a flyer. Padilla asked for a final question, and I shot my hand up, along with a couple of TV reporters. You could almost see the wheels turning as Padilla looked back and forth between the hyper-groomed women from channels 4 and 5 and the guy in the back with a rumpled suit like his own. He picked me. August Reardon, China Free Press, I bellowed. I could feel the bearded guy in the skirt tensing up beside me as I spoke. Some in the Chinese community have expressed concern about the legitimacy of the results of the general election due to the use of touchscreen voting technology. Does the unfortunate murder of elections director Bowman add weight to those concerns? Heads jerked around to look at me. Kathleen's face got stony, and my skirted escort put his combat boot down heavily. Padilla was too savvy to show a reaction, but I didn't think it was a coincidence that he took the opportunity to sip from a water glass before answering. The murder of Director Bowman was unfortunate, but as a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and a candidate for mayor, it would not be appropriate for me to comment on an ongoing investigation. As for the election, we are quite satisfied that the results reflect the will of the people of San Francisco. Green Party poll monitors were on-site at all precincts and observed no significant voting irregularities. Follow up, I shouted, and immediately felt the heel of the guy with the skirt digging into my toe. Doesn't today's shooting death of the chief engineer of CVT, the city's touchscreen voting machine supplier, only serve to heighten the controversy surrounding the results? A frisson of surprise ran through the reporters, and many of them yanked out cell phones and began dialing frantically. Padilla looked nonplussed for the first time. He opened his mouth to speak, thought better of it, and then took another sip of water. Kathleen had almost crawled up his back by the time he managed. I'm not familiar with any such report, and my early response about not commenting on criminal investigations still stands. Simultaneous cries of Mike came from at least six reporters, including most all of the print guys. Kathleen bowled her way to the microphone. Sorry, she yelled. Sorry, that was the last question. Thank you. She hustled Padilla off to the right and around the stage to a door at the back. With no candidate to badger, the reporters turned on me. Some stepped over the rows of chairs to get at me. Others jumped the velvet rope and did an end around to reach me from behind. It was like being in the middle of a rugby scrum with information about the shooting and not the ball being the thing that everyone wanted. I gave a brief explanation, leaving out the fact that I was a shooter, answered a few shouted questions, and then abruptly twisted out of my seat. 
The guy in the skirt grabbed for me, but I managed to avoid him. I made it under the velvet rope, out the back of the theater, and almost through the front door of the school when I felt a hand dig into my shoulder. Hold it! I turned to find Che Rivera and Kathleen staring at me. Che looked friendlier. I just got off the phone with the South City cops, she said. They told me about your involvement. Then I remembered why your name seemed so familiar when Roger called me on the credentials check. You were also the one who found Bowman. I took her hand by the wrist and pried it off my shoulder. She was a big, strong girl. It was like dislodging a limpet. None of that matters, I said. There are still a lot of unanswered questions hanging over the election. Don't think I don't know a dirty tricks campaign when I see it. Mike Padilla is going to change the city, and I'm not letting bastards like you stop him. Consider this a warning. She reared back and kicked me in the shin. I yelped and reached down to rub the tenderized flesh. When I looked up again, she and the guy in the skirt were standing over me. Seeing them side by side with their black berets, black boots, and black looks, I realized that they must be brother and sister. But it wasn't hard to understand why she wore the pants in the family. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.